The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. We preach from the book of 2 Thessalonians. I'd like you to turn there, if you would, to Paul's second letter to the church at Thessalonica. After several weeks of Christmas season and preaching on some different subjects, we now resume our study in the series Living in the Light of Christ's Return. And here we are moving into Paul's second letter to the Thessalonian church. And this is one of the churches that he founded during his second missionary journey. You can read about the second journey in Acts chapter 16 through 18. And there you'll find that Paul visited this church in Macedonia, which is a former, was a former territory of Alexander the Great, but had now become a very important part of the Roman Empire. It was a city with a population of about a quarter of a million people located on the Ignatian Way, which was the primary east-west trade route of the Roman Empire. It was also located next to the sea, and so it was a very, very important city in that time. And if you'd like some more information about it, I'm not going to go through the introduction to the city itself. We did that at the beginning of the series in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. So if you would like to refresh yourself on that or hear more about it, you would go all the way back to that very first sermon that I preached, and that'll tell you a little bit more about Thessalonica. So this was a very important place, and we come to Paul's second letter to this Thessalonian church, and our text verses are verses 1 through 5. Here the apostle writes, Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus under the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is meet, because that your faith groweth exceedingly, and the charity of every one of you all toward each other aboundeth, so that we ourselves glory in you in the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that ye endure, which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God, that ye may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which ye also suffer. Today I'd like to talk to you about a model church. What is a model church? And what is a New Testament church? Often you'll hear us say that we really desire to be, what we want to be is a New Testament church. We want the Berean Baptist Church to look like and to worship like and to believe like a church in the New Testament. And because of that, I think it's a very fair question for us to ask, what what is a New Testament church? What exactly are we talking about when we say New Testament church? Well, as we look into the New Testament, it's very interesting that we'll find many churches that we wouldn't necessarily want to be like. Some of those churches were founded by the Apostle Paul, that great apostle, and they weren't the kind of churches that we would want to be because they aren't good examples to follow. 
In the Revelation, in chapters 2 and 3, Jesus sent letters to New Testament churches, seven of them, and five of them were so filled with error and wickedness that Christ warned them that unless they repented of their sins, unless they turned back to Him, they would be in danger of losing their status as His churches. Well, would we want to model ourselves after those? Well, the obvious answer is that no, we wouldn't. We don't want that model. But we want to find a church that was sanctified, one that was holy, one that showed that they were truly formed into the image of Christ. And as we studied this church in Thessalonica, I believe that we can say this is the kind of church they were. Paul shows it was that kind of church by commending them and and using them as an example for other churches in Macedonia and Achaia to follow. Now, you'll notice the title of my message today is A Berean Church in Thessalonica. Uh, That uh, title is a little bit strange because we also have to ask, what is a Berean church? Well, you know that Berean is our namesake. Uh, It's taken from the town of Berea. That's another place in Paul's second missionary journey. In fact, Paul visited Berea just after he was thrown out of the city of Thessalonica. Luke, the historian, recorded the difference between Thessalonica and Berea. He said, the Bereans, those who lived in Berea, those who who heard Paul preach there, the ones that uh, he brought the gospel to, he says they were more noble than those that were in Thessalonica. He said they were because they received the word of God with readiness of mind. They searched the scriptures to see if what Paul said was true. And that's why we use the name Berean. We want to be known as people of the word. We want to be known as people who search the scriptures to find out what the word of God has to say about our God. But when Luke compared the Bereans to the Thessalonians, they were different types of people. The Thessalonians were much harder to reach. They were much harder to teach. But in the time since Paul left, They had transformed into a Berean church. The evidence is in the first chapter, or first letter, I should say, chapter 2 and verse 13, if you want to look. 1 Thessalonians 2.13, he says to the church, For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when ye received the word of God which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God which effectually worketh also in you that believe. And if you go back to Acts chapter 17, you you see that description of Berea, and that sounds very much like them. And now Paul says here, you have become a church like that. Apparently, the church in Thessalonica had become a Berean church. And you'll notice, again, Paul's love for this church because he wrote no letters to the Berean church, at least none that are recorded in Scripture. Um, But on the other hand, he wrote two letters to this Thessalonian church expressing his love and concern for them. Now, it could be that the Bereans didn't need any letters of correction. It might be that they didn't. But nonetheless, Paul wrote two letters to the Thessalonians. And in both letters, he gives exhortations and praise for their faith, their love, and their hope. And then he used them as a model church for others to follow. It's true that the Thessalonians had problems. They needed correction. There isn't any such thing as a perfect church. We are sinful people. 
And we do need to be reminded to be more faithful, to be more loving, to be more hopeful than we are. The measure of a good church, though, is how they respond to the correction. When we learn that we're doing something the wrong way, and when our hearts are not as dedicated to the Lord as they should be, what do we do when the preacher stands and said, here's where you're wrong, and this is what you need to do in your life to correct it? A good church, a model church, takes that correction. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, it corrects those problems that are there. So we will be a Berean church, the kind that Paul, the apostle, could use as a model for other churches to follow. Now, it's apparent that the Thessalonians had changed. Paul said, we glory in you. You are a testament to how the word sanctifies and makes you more like Christ. So if we're looking for a model church, this would be it. This is a Berean church in Thessalonica. Now, there there are more preliminary comments to make as we begin the letter. And it's most important that when we refer to the church, when we use this word church, that we very clearly understand what it is. The church. The church is a local assembly of people just like this one that is known as the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park. The church is a body of believers that gathers in a certain location. It is a body of believers that are banded together for the preaching of the gospel. It meets, it worships Christ, it edifies God's people. A church is comprised of believers. These are people that are saved, they're born again, they are truly regenerated, and because they are, they have repented of their sins and they place their faith in Jesus Christ. And so they gather They come to glorify Christ, to worship Him in praise and prayer and through preaching. And there's really just a wonderful phrase in verse 1, verses 1 and 2 of the text that indicates this. Paul said, the church is in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to note that very carefully because that separates us from all other religions. We are in God. Nobody else says that they are in their God. Christians are different because the scriptures say that we are made a part of the divine nature of God. Now, don't misunderstand. We are not God. We won't become God, but we do share in his nature. He gives us a new nature when we are regenerated by the Holy Spirit. And when that happens, God's Holy Spirit actually enters into a Christian becomes an indwelling presence. There is no other religion that claims this but Christianity. And to be in God, you must be in and believe in Jesus Christ. You must be born again by His Spirit. You must be transformed into the image of Christ. As Paul described in the first letter in chapter 5, you must be sanctified through and through all parts of you to be holy as God is holy. And God's children, those that are truly regenerated, are always in that process of being made like Jesus Christ. But as I explain the church that way, most people wouldn't think of a model church in those terms. They think in a much different way. They're looking at different things. A few years ago, there was a singing group from a Christian college that visited us. And the leader of the group pulled me aside and he said, your church has good curb appeal. 
Then he looked at the bulletin. He said, you know, this bulletin is really good. It's very attractive. It's nice to hear those things. Uh, But the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is not this building. I, I don't care to be known for the building. Although it's nice that the community doesn't consider us an eyesore. But I want us to be known as people that are faithful to Jesus Christ. And we are a church. And this would, this would be the thing that makes us stand out. We are a teaching church that wants to magnify Jesus Christ and always preaches truth from this pulpit. So it's nice to hear the other things. But I'd much rather hear people say, you know, you preach truth there. And that makes you a model church. Well, what is a model church? I believe Paul identifies at least four marks of a Berean church in these five verses. And today that's what I want to talk to you about, the model church. What is a model church according to the New Testament? Well, first I think that we could see a model church surpasses in faith. That's number one in your listening sheet. A model church surpasses in faith. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is meet or as it's fitting, because that your faith groweth exceedingly. Isn't that a grand compliment? Wouldn't you want to have that compliment from somebody like the Apostle Paul? In the first letter, Paul commended their faith, but he said, there's some things that are still lacking. There's some areas that... that are not so good. I mean, your faith started out well, your faith looks good, but there's still some areas of it that need shoring. There's some areas that are still just a little bit shaky. If you remember, we studied that section, and we noted that one of the problems that the Thessalonians had was their struggle with the culture. They were struggling with the immorality of their culture, and they were tempted at times to go back into it and live like they did before. And we see the very same thing happen in our church and uh, people get saved and there's lots of people that are in the church that are tempted to go back and live like they did before. And some are even living living in sin that, that they shouldn't be in. So Paul said, you've got problems, your faith, your faith look good, but there's some areas that are a little a little bit shaky. Now, what was wrong is they were short of having a fully sanctifying faith. Now, let's understand that he's not talking about their saving faith. Not that. Their saving faith, saving faith is always enough. It can never be that those that are saved by faith need more faith to keep being saved. And the reason for that is that God is the one who gives faith. God never gives a deficient faith. So once you have faith to be saved, you'll always be saved because God sustains that faith. But what he's speaking of here is a sanctifying faith. This is the faith that you live out your life with that has to be, uh, it has to be built, it has to be uh, improved every single day. It takes prayer, it takes Bible reading, it takes consecration and dedication to your life as a Christian. Well, in this letter, he tells them that those areas, in the second letter, those areas of sanctifying faith that he was concerned about and where they were lacking, he said... Those things are improving. The gaps, the holes in your faith are being filled so that your faith is growing exceedingly. And I really can't tell you how much of a compliment that was. I'm not even sure that we could fully relate to it because we've never seen the difficulties they faced. Their faith exceeded even though they were terribly persecuted. I think about us in our church and many other churches. We're not really experiencing persecution not bad persecution, and yet we have people that fail in their faith. 
But we expect that as things get tougher, as more persecution comes, that, that faith would recede. That faith would begin to fail. They would, would be, in fact, tempted to turn back, and they would turn back. But as we survey this church, they hadn't failed. They hadn't turned back. And instead of being beaten down in their faith, they were rising. Paul said, you are surpassing. We expect persecution will get the best of them. Remember, Paul was concerned about it. He sent Timothy to check on them to see if it was so. And Timothy returned with this glowing report of how their faith was still active. Their faith was strong and even getting stronger. Persecution had not turned them back. Well, then why does Paul write this second letter? If that's not the issue, why does he write the second letter? Well, it's needed... Because the more that people grow in the faith, the more relentless are Satan's attacks against them. Satan is subtle, he is conniving, he's a master deceiver. Chapter 2 indicates that someone impersonated Paul and sent a false letter and tried to shake their faith. So Paul wrote this letter to assure them his word hadn't changed. In the first letter he said, you will be delivered from the wrath to come. The tribulation and the end times would not overtake them. But now someone has written to them, pretending to be Paul, and told them, the final tribulation has begun. Christ has come, and maybe you missed him. So he wrote them to tell tell them that the day of the Lord had not come. And then he'll go on to explain the parameters of the day of the Lord. And we'll talk more about that problem as we get into the second chapter. So their faith had grown despite obstacles. And we do have to think how monumental that compliment was because there was no one in their immediate area that they could turn to for support. There was no one to come and help them. They couldn't turn to the government. The government was part of their problem. They couldn't go to to their representative and say, you know, my rights as a Christian are just being trampled on. That's... Government's part of their problem. And isn't it amazing that American Christians are so entitled that we think that there is no protection for us unless the government steps in to help us? We deserve help. We need help. We pay our taxes to get help. And if we don't get it from the government, the church will fail. And that seems to be the woeful tale of so many conservative Christians that are always crying about what the government does and what the government must be and how things are just going to just, just completely crumble if the government isn't our savior. If the president and the legislature and the Supreme Court are not packed with Christian sympathizers, then how will we ever survive? Well, I want you to listen The political parties in this country are on an all-out assault against the church. There is one party that makes no pretenses about what they're about. And then you have the other party that's only favorable to us as long as we deliver enough votes. Don't think for a minute that this world is in favor of Christians or of anything that looks like morality and decency. This world is the domain of the devil. And as far as the world is concerned, we are trespassing on their territory. So the model church must have in its mind that our only help is the Lord, and the only help that we need is the Lord. Because the Lord is the one who made the heavens and the earth, and He does as He pleases among all the inhabitants of this world. God doesn't need them. They need God. 
We will survive if our faith surpasses. We will survive if our faith grows exceedingly. Now notice what the apostle says here. He gives thanks for their tribulation. He didn't cry and say, unless this stops, there's no hope for you. Christians have never been strangers to tribulation. There's nothing to cry about because of it. Paul gave thanks for it because it was tribulation that was the cause of their surpassing faith. It's strange, but the church thrives under severe persecution. Oh, we expect otherwise. We expect regress. We expect receding faith. But here we see faith increased. Though they were persecuted, faith increased. They grew in the faith because they weren't looking around them to see what everybody else was doing. They were looking at their Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. They were in God and in His Son, Jesus Christ. And our position as Christians is solid because we know things they don't know. What does a believer know that increases his faith? First, as it says here, he knows he's in God. That's substantial, isn't it? We are in God. We know God's on our side. We know that the sins of the past life are forgiven. We know that we've been reconciled to God. And that's so important because God tells us that he's never going to hold us accountable for anything that we did in the past. Because all of that was put on Jesus Christ. When you place your faith in Christ, he forgave you of all of the sins of the past. So it doesn't matter what your former life was. With faith in Christ, God forgives, not because of who you are, but he gives, forgives because of who Christ is. He forgives for Christ's sake. So there's not one, save, or not one sin rather that he will fail to forget. Christ's atoning death is bigger than all of our sins. So in our past life, according to our past life, we know everything's okay there. What about present life? Well, the Christian also knows that his present life is in God. We are protected. We have God's provision. We have a light that guides our path. We can't fail. Because for us to fail is for God to fail. And I promise you that's not going to happen. We are secure. We are, we are safe no matter what happens in the present. Then thirdly, the believer is sure about his future life. His future life is also in God. He's delivered from judgment. We are delivered from the wrath to come. We know that there is a place in heaven prepared for us. Christ has gone to prepare that place. And he says he's coming back to take us there. So a growing faith means that every day we trust him more because we know these marvelous truths. The past, the present, and the future are all in Christ. We depend on him now. We don't worry about tomorrow. We don't really need to think about what will happen tomorrow. You know why you don't? Whenever I am tempted to think about tomorrow, I just look back at the past. You're still here, aren't you? Everything that happened in the past is over, isn't it? You're, you're still here. You survived it all, didn't you? You go through every day, and you will go through every day until God is through with your days, and then you'll be with Him. You know, I've learned that. Sometimes I worry, and then I snap back and realize that worry never did anything for me. Worry never helped me. Jesus said, worry's not going to do anything for you. Worry always takes away. When my wife became ill, um, I started looking into the future to see what I would do. And guess what? I have no control over the future. 
But I know who does. I know who holds tomorrow. So why worry when he's got it? Why worry when worry doesn't change him? He's got the future all sewn up and settled. And so tomorrow I'll wake up and I'll know that I got through yesterday. If he can't handle it, then what hope is there for me? So are you worried about things? Are you worried about your bank account? Are you thinking about the promotion you might get at work? Are you worried about a nicer house? Are you worried about your retirement? Well, if you're worried about those things, then you're not really thinking about the status of your faith. Are you concerned with this? Are you growing in your faith? I, I, I think we know the answer with many. There's a whole new theology that's grown up about, that's built on increasing riches rather than increasing faith. Prosperity preachers say, oh, you can, be, you can be rich on this earth. Because you're God's child, you should be rich on this earth. And not even understanding that God doesn't care two hoots about this puny earth. Why would he? Not in that sense. Why would he? He's got eternal treasures in heaven that are laid up for us that are far beyond our wildest imaginations. So why do we worry about increasing riches on this earth where it all fades away, it all gets burned up, it's no good for us? Surpassing faith, that's what will always rule your growth in God's kingdom. So does that concern you? Does it concern you what's happening? Never does Paul promise, do you know, Paul never promised a Christian anything more than this, more tribulation. Never promised anything but more tribulation. And with tribulation comes more faith. So a model church surpasses in faith. Secondly, a model church abounds in love. I'm thankful Paul provided such an easy outline for this sermon. He said, we are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is meet, because that your faith groweth exceedingly. That's our first point, surpassing faith. And the charity, the love of every one of you all toward each other aboundeth. A model church abounds in love. Now, in the first letter, Paul told them they were a model of love. But still, reading that letter, there, there is a prayer that their love would grow even more. And that happened. This, this takes place. They are progressing. Their love abounded. And notice he says, your love toward each other. Now, when he talks about love, he's not talking about loving the world and loving things that are in the world. John, who is the apostle of love, wrote, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And so here is more proof of their conversion. The love of the Father is not in those that love the world. But we note here that Paul said, you are in God, and you are in Jesus Christ, therefore it must be they don't love the world. So yes, Bereans, we do, to, do need to make take note of this. Are our affections on the world? Are we determined to have what the world has and do what the world does? Do you delight in the activities of the world so that the world prevents your service to Christ? Would you substitute time with the world with time for time with the church? If any man, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. John is, says that is definitive. That is definitive. That's the character of a person without Christ, who does not know Christ. The love of the Father can't be in a person who loves the world and substitutes the world for Jesus Christ. So what is this love that he speaks of? Well, of course, there would be love for Christ. 
But here he's, he's dealing more with the fellowship of the church and he's speaking of their love for each other. This, this was the thing that would stand out among them is that they had such love for each other. And we're not talking about a squishy type of love, a, 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 a sentimental, soft, sentimental type of love. No, he's speaking about a love that just hangs in there and you just carry on enduring adversity. Let me give an example of it. It's at the end of the letter. If you want to look in the third chapter of 2 Thessalonians, we can see it here. Uh, Paul always has trouble with churches. Usually they have some kind of problem. He's constantly straightening out churches. And obviously, this letter was written because there's still some sin there. And notice how he handles offenders. This is in the third chapter, beginning at verse 14. And if any man obey not our word by this epistle, by this letter, note that man and have no company with him, that he may be ashamed. Yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Is that hard? You know, some people are very, very difficult to fix. Some are hard-headed. They're obstinate. Some people just grate against your flesh. People in the church can do that. You just get on my last nerve, fella. But unless they're involved in some sort of horrible heresy, what do you do? Well, he says rebuke them, but you don't count them as your enemies. They are your brethren. They are your family. Now, they might act like black sheep sometimes, and sometimes they are black sheep. But what we have to do is gently try to restore them, try to correct them, try to bring them back. Now, when someone hurts you in the church, and we deal with feelings of people all the time, don't we? Somebody in the church hurt me. Well, when they hurt you, it's your duty, my duty, others' duty to help the family and strive in love to correct the ones that are wrong. Now, some of these people in Thessalonica were very difficult. Some of them were confused about the Lord's return. I just told you that some of them followed a lie. They, they took this uh, false letter that was sent, and they said, that's what Paul says, but Paul didn't say it, so they're all mixed up. And then some people took advantages of the good graces of other Christians and they thought the Lord had already come and now they're, they, they're, or they're waiting on the Lord. They sold everything and now they become Christian moochers. They're living off everybody else. Give me, give me, give me, give me. And they won't work. Most of them straightened up, but some of them didn't. So Paul said, now you're going to have to part company with some of these people. You, you just need to part company and that will shake them up. But not because they're your enemies. And he showed that in his own life. In Corinth, hard-headed Christians wiped the ground with Paul's name. Some of them caused him pain. Some doubted his apostleship. Some thought that they were more spiritual than him. And still he said, I will love you though the less I be loved. I will still be spent for you. That's a model attitude. And the question is, can we do that when we have been treated poorly? It's easy to treat people that treat, treat well, treat people well that treat you well. The model attitude here is, is to still love that person when he bites your head off. Jesus said, for if you love them which love you, what thank have ye? For sinners also love those that love them. But love your enemies and do good and lend, hoping for nothing again, and your reward shall be great. And ye shall be the children of the highest, for he is kind unto the unthankful and to the evil. 
Oh, that, that's kind of interesting because there Jesus referred to loving your enemies, whereas Paul in Second Thessalonians is speaking of members of the church, and he says they're not your enemies. So how much easier should it be to love them when they hurt you? Their motives aren't the same as a lost person. They're, they're not out to get you. They're not sinister like unbelievers. Oh, abounding love helps get over all the hostilities in the church. It helps to get over the times that, that people hurt you in the church. Say things about you that you might not like and say things behind your back, hurt your feelings all of the time. A model church is just simply filled with people that love people. They help each other. I mean, in our church, this is what we do. We help each other. We care for each other. We watch out for each other. And that's what abounding love does. Now, thirdly, what is a model church? A model church endures in tribulation. Verse 4, so that we ourselves glory in you in the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that ye endure. A model church endures in tribulation. Look at, look at the first part of the verse. We ourselves glory in you. That's, a, that's an unusual expression for Paul. He was never one to take pride in his accomplishments. He would rather just turn the praise to others or turn the praise to the Lord Jesus Christ, put it all on him. But here we see something very unusual from Paul because there seems to be just a little bit of pride of accomplishment. In this, he includes himself and the fellow ministers, also Silas and Timothy. And I don't think it's an unholy pride. I think this is a holy pride where Paul wants to impress for our good that ministers have their reward when the congregation does well. There's some pride when a minister can teach and the church is surpassing in faith and abounding in love. And I feel that sometimes when I, when I discuss the scriptures with some of you and we can sit and we can fellowship with one another and I can see that growth and the grasp of the scriptures as you've been taught the word of God. And I understand the Lord deserves all the praise for that, but I am thankful that God allows us as ministers to have some fruit in the ministry. I mean, to, to be recognized uh, that, that, that things are going well. And, and that's good for a minister to know that. You know, I've been to many church websites where they applaud the pastor because this is what the pastor did. He grew the church from 25 to 2,500. And the pride is in the number. My pride is not in the number. My pride is in you. It's like, a, it's like a parent who carries around photos of his kids. Don't you hate it when someone pulls out the photos? Have you seen my kids? Um, have you heard about my children? Well, in this world, in, in the Christian world, this is a very good thing. Remember what Paul said to his converts? I have begotten you in the faith. In 1 Thessalonians, he talked about being a father to his children. And, and he went on and talked about being a nurturing mother. Here's, here's the Apostle Paul, just like John. John always called the church his little children. So like a proud parent, Paul pulls out the wallet photos of these people and showed them to others and said, Have you heard about this church in Thessalonica? That is a Berean church. Faithful Faithful people, abounding in love. And then he goes on and rejoices in their persecution. What does persecution do? 
Well, we've already remarked that it doesn't destroy faith. Our enemies hope it will. By the numbers of times that they put persecution on the church, now and throughout history, you would think, well, this is the thing to do if you're going to destroy God's people. You need to persecute them. But they are so wrong about this because persecution never did anything but increase the faith of the church and make the church grow. So oddly enough, persecution works against the persecutors. How does it do it? Well, persecution doesn't destroy true faith. It destroys false faith. It exposes those that have infiltrated the church without believing. Like the sower who sowed the seed on rocky soil, it took shallow root. What happens? Jesus says persecution comes and the false believer fades away. He has no root and so he's burned up in the hot sun. So you put a false professor on the hot seat, he won't stay. He'll give up his profession. He doesn't have anything to anchor him, so he turns away. And John said, they leave because they never were really a part of us. They weren't really true believers. But those who are truly in the faith, they are God's people, they don't leave. They don't fail. They grow stronger in the persecution. So persecution works against Satan. He loses those infiltrators and at the same time does nothing but increase the endurance of God's people. At the same time, their activities, the activities of the persecutors, recompense the persecutors with destruction. Now, it sounds kind of strange, but the demise of Christianity in this country is not persecution. It's lack of it. We're too soft. Converts in most churches aren't real. They're playthings. And you can see that in their love of entertainment. I mean, my goodness, folks, I mean, many of these people are offered Friday night services so they don't have to spend their good Sunday time in church. They can just go to the beach on the weekend, get it over with on Friday night. Well, Bereans don't fear what others do to us because the Lord continues to increase our faith. If they come at us, we just grow stronger. Someday, we, you know, living in this area, we're, we're going to have something happen. I'm convinced of that. Something is going to happen here, something bad. I'm not being, I'm trying to be ominous or anything like that. But because of where we live, because of what we teach, I think that we can expect we're going to have some sort of persecution here. But if we're strong in our faith, we surpass in faith, we trust the Lord, that doesn't matter. You know, I think, uh, I think about this. Some of you may remember, their old time members, you, you remember that more than 20 years ago, there was an arsonist who set fire to our buses in the back parking lot. You remember that? And, and I think that uh, whoever that was, obviously under the influences of Satan, thought that they could just keep our buses from running, and that would stop us. But you know what happened? The many in the community that never stepped foot in this church, that probably didn't care too much about this church at all, they got real sentimental when the paper puts, when somebody who, who wrote that story in the paper put it in there, now kids don't have buses to ride to Sunday school. And when they read that, they got tears in their eyes and they started writing checks and they sent them to the church and provided us with better buses than we had before. I mean, that was crocodile tears, cried for the little children and they didn't even know what they were doing, I don't think. And here's the devil saying, what in the world did I do? I sure messed that one up, didn't I? And there's the church continuing to run those buses. Our Romans class 
knows what God said about persecution. In the 8th chapter, it says, Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Throw everything you have at us. We're still secure. We're still stronger than the enemy. All the powers of darkness will never snatch one of his from the Father's hand. We are in God and in Jesus Christ. And here's another interesting thing. The ability to withstand persecution is evidence that the supernatural power of God was in them. Now, if you look at it in another way, if a majority of these people had fallen away, then we would say, well, then what caused them to stay for so long? And we would think, well, they must have convinced themselves of something. Perhaps they're a cult. And people can convince themselves to die for a cause. So maybe they're a cult. But we know that's not what happened here because there are too many of these people that show the identifying characteristics of the Holy Spirit. They showed the power of God was in them. That's how you endure. Endurance of persecution is evidence the power of God is in you. Listen to Peter. He says, if ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, listen, for the spirit of the glory and of God resteth upon you. On your part, he is evil spoken of, but on your part, he is glorified. And persecution gets even more interesting. The believer can rejoice in it because it's evident that God will finally vindicate and avenge his people. Second Peter 2 verse 9, The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under the day of judgment to be punished. That, that's a significant consideration for the, last, um, for the last observation. But before we get there, just notice this. Paul said persecutions and tribulations. Why does he use both? Well, tribulation is a broader term, broader than persecution. And this is where he brings in all things that are against you in your Christian life. I'm not, it's not just somebody out there, you know, who sees you are a Christian and say, you know, I'm going to throw a rock at you. I'm going to hurt you in some way like that. No, this is tribulations or all the things that come into your life. For instance, why are you tempted all the time? Why is it so hard to overcome this sin? Why are you sick? Why did you lose your job? Why is there so much pressure on you? Why are finances so bad? Now here then is the reason, this last reason, a mark of a Berean church. It has to do with that very issue. A model church is one that improves for the kingdom. It improves for the kingdom. Why do all these things happen to you? And you may not like the answer. Why do they happen to you? Verse 5. Which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God, that ye may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which ye also suffer. Suffering is the way that God makes you worthy of his kingdom. Now the language of the text says counted worthy. This is a reckoning that doesn't come by what you do. It's what God does when he declares you worthy. He reckons you worthy. And it's not because you stayed faithful. You stay faithful because Christ, by his will, saved you. And then God counted you worthy for his sake. God counts you worthy because he's the one that put the trials on you. He's the one that put hardships on you to prove that you are his child. And you stay faithful to him. And that shows that you are his child. That proves to you and it proves to others your true character as a believer in Jesus Christ. Faithfulness in trials 
That's a means of assuring that you are in the faith. Now, that's what he says. It's a token of the righteous judgment of God. That simply means that God designed your troubles. God brings suffering. Oh, no, you sit back and you say, how does that work? That can't possibly be right. God brings trials on me. God brings the suffering. Why? Well, it's because he wants people of strong faith that trust him implicitly. And how will he get that? Not by going soft. Because then we'd never need to trust him. Look at the history of the church. Where do we find anything but only very brief respites for God's people? All other times have brought incredible struggles. And so the proof that the church is true and supernaturally empowered is that no one, not the government, not a dictator, not, no communist, no atheist, no presidential candidate, has ever destroyed God's church. And so in 2,000 years of relentless troubles, in the persistence of persecution, in the hatred of heathens for 2,000 years, the church survived and it will survive because every trial has improved God's people. God designs trials to improve you. So the church will survive until there is a kingdom. And then when the kingdom comes, God will crush all opposition. So the thing that we need to remember today is that this is the day of God's mercy. God saves now. It's best for us to be in him and to be on his side because all others are going to be destroyed. How will they be destroyed? Well, we'll skip down to verse 8 for just a minute. It says in flaming fire. In verse number 9, it says it's everlasting destruction. Now, all that the world can do is put temporary persecution on us. But the Lord returns that hatred with vengeance and indescribable agony that lasts for eternity. And so if you ask, what is a Berean church? Well, it's not a beautiful building with curb appeal. It's not a program for every felt need. We're not here to satisfy your felt needs. We're here to take care of a need that you never knew you had. And that is you need to be saved from the wrath to come. A Berean church is one with surpassing faith. It's people that abound in love. It's saints who endure all tribulations. And it's one, a church that is sanctified and improving every day for God's kingdom. That's the church we want to be. God help us to be faithful. God help us to love more. God help us to endure the tribulations. We are a Berean church that lives and survives only by the power of God. Thank God for what he's done for us in Jesus Christ. We are in God and in his son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you. We thank you for the message from your word today. We praise you, Lord, that you know us. You know everything there is about us. You know how to encourage us. You know how to strengthen us. You know how to make us different people than we are. So, Lord, in everything that comes into our lives, just rem- we need to remember that you've designed that. You haven't lost control of anything. Lord, help us to trust what you do with us each and every day. We thank you, Father. For our church, and there are so many here that are good Bereans, just good Bereans. We praise your name for it. Lord, I I just pray that you draw the whole congregation after this same thought. We must, we must, we must be more like Christ. Help us to be. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.